So here's the question. Are you ready? Okay. What do you think of Jesus? What do I think of Jesus? Yeah. He's kind. He's kind. Do you like him? Yeah. I think he's amazing. I think that he's the only way to eternal life and that he died for the world. He moves people like when they're down. It gives us hope. What do you think of Jesus? I'm going to pass on that one. Um, well, I think Jesus is probably a cool dude, but everyone's kind of hyped up about it, and it turned into uh, a big mess in a way. Uh, he's my savior. He's my friend. He's my best friend. He's my father and my savior, and I I don't doubt any anything he has ever said. Wow. Great. You think he's great? Yeah. Pretty good guy. People need something to believe in, and he's kind of like the Santa Claus of religion. I talk to him frequently during the day to help get me through. I love him. Um, he loves me unconditionally, and he's changed my life, and I am forever grateful. He was a good man, and he did a lot for us, and he sacrificed a lot. What do you think of Jesus? I don't know. I mean, like, I believe in him. I think he's a pretty good guy. I'm not, I mean, I'm not like church going guy, but no complaints. Well, I believe that, I don't know, I have, I believe in God. I have my own relationship with God, but I don't necessarily have much to do with an organized religion. But Jesus, just a man, just what do you think of him? I, I think that, I think he was a good man. I think he is awesome. That's what I think of Jesus. Well, good morning, Northridge. It is fabulous to be with you. It's great to be in Plymouth, Michigan in August, except I thought it would be hotter than this. I live about 30 minutes um, south of a city called San Francisco. Why is there a San Francisco? It's kind of interesting. It turns out it's because there, there was a guy a long time ago named Francis, Francis of Assisi. And he went around, loved people, did so much... Uh, so many generous things that they named cities after him. I live about 30 minutes north of a town called San Jose. Why is there a San Jose? Well, turns out there was a guy named Joseph whose life was intersected by a man named Jesus. Capital of our state in California is called Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Well, because a long time ago, a man named Jesus had a meal to express the idea that God loves so much that he suffers, and this became the most famous meal in the history of the world. It's been observed for over 2,000 years now. You all observe this. I have a cousin, Danny Hall, who lives in a town called Grand Rapids, Michigan. Why is there a Grand Rapids, Michigan? Nobody knows. <laughs> Not even Jesus knows why there is a Grand Rapids, Michigan. But it's kind of interesting. You can't even look at a map without being reminded of this man, Jesus. The impact of his life is so deep that his birth is the most widely celebrated birth 2,000 years after his life. And it's hard to think of what would, whose birthday would be number two. The instrument on which his enemies killed him, a cross, marks more graves, adorns more jewelry, is the single most recognizable symbol in the history of the world. And again, it would be hard to come up with number two. Jesus' movement grows 
even though his followers are often quite inadequate to represent him. Anybody here ever feel inadequate to serve Jesus? This may make you feel a little better. This is from Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson, great Christian writer and thinker. He's the guy who did the Message Bible, that translator. That was Eugene Peterson. He writes about growing up in a Christian home, but being picked on in the second grade by a bully named Garrison Johns, trying to figure out how do I respond. This is what he writes. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, but he picked me for his victim. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus' sissy. I arrived home most afternoons, bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world, and I had better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. One day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us and started jabbing me. And that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground. I sat on his chest. I pinned his arms with my knees, and he was helpless. At my mercy, it was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Again, this is Eugene Peterson. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. I tried again. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. So if you ever feel like inadequate at witnessing or talking about Jesus or, you know, that kind of deal, you know, feel better. Jesus' influence endures in spite of a lot of opposition over the years. A lot of times his influence endures in spite of people who claim to follow him. Endures to a staggering level. Nobody has ever touched the world. This is a fabulous quote by a historian from Yale named uh, Yaroslav Pelikan. He wrote, regardless of what anyone personally may think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet, to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? So, like, forget about religion. I don't know what you think about the idea that Jesus is divine or where you stand on the belief spectrum. Put that aside for these next few moments. Consider this Jesus simply as a person who was born and lived and who died. And if you look honestly without prejudice at his life and his impact on our world, you have to ask the question, who was this man? And that's what I want to do for the next several moments. I, a lot of times, even in churches, we're focused mostly on our own selves and our own lives. And I'm going to ask for the next few moments. We're going to go through like a lot of historical material that we all just kind of forget about ourselves and think about Jesus for a while and learn together. And I know it's a lot of information, but every once in a while, when I'm afraid I'm going to lose you, I'll just pause and ask, are you still with me? Are you still with me? 
Are you still with me? Thank you. I want you to say yes with passion and conviction. Even if you're not still with me, say yes with a lot of passion because it'll make me feel better. Now, start by naming the obvious. It would be hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world. Jesus never did any of the stuff we would expect. Never held an office, never had a title, never led an army, never traveled, never wrote a book. His followers were remarkably unimportant people. The New Testament itself talks about how they were called unschooled, ordinary men. And yet, 2,000 years later, it is simply impossible to imagine the world had Jesus not lived. That's what we're going to try to do. So, start here. Try to imagine a world where there is no such thing as a church. No Vatican, no St. Paul's Cathedral in London, no Notre Dame in Paris, no Northridge, no storefront church in Detroit, no people gathering in Asia or Africa or South America, and none of the people who became followers of Jesus, no Peter or Paul or Timothy or Augustine or Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Joan of Arc or John Wesley. But let's go back to the beginning, to the idea of the church, to the idea. See, in the ancient world, there were nations, there were families, there were ethnic groups, there were tribal religions. There were schools of philosophy. The church was not any of those. It wasn't any of those. It was something new. Apostle Paul said about it, now here, that is in the church, in this community, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. All those, this is a place for anybody, for everybody. The vision is for all of humanity to be gathered together. I live in California. There's a little amusement park there called Disneyland. Anybody ever been to Disneyland? If you had kids, I'll bet you did this. Did you ever go on a ride called It's a Small World After All? That song will drive you out of your mind. By the time you are, you pay money to get off of that ride by the time it's done. And it's just this vision you go through. People of every culture and every nation and every language. And so where'd that idea come from? Where, before the church, was there a movement that actively sought to include every human being, regardless of ethnicity or status or wealth or gender, to be loved and transformed in one single inclusive community? Do you understand, not only had there never been a community like that, there had simply not been the idea of a community like that. It was his idea. It was Jesus' idea. And with no money, no power, no connections, he died when he was just a young man 2,000 years later. Here we are. And, by the way, the 12 steps, anybody who's ever been involved in recovery, 12 steps come directly out of what was called the Oxford Group. It was a movement of Jesus' followers to reclaim ancient practices for transformation. No Jesus, no 12 steps. Now, I'm not saying that apart from Jesus, there never would have been an actionable vision of humankind as a family. What I am saying is, as a matter of historical reality, that whole dream began with a poverty-stricken, crucified carpenter. Who was this man? He changed how we think about history. Now, in our day, we just expect there to be progress, and we'll often do surveys. You think life will be better for the next generation than for this one. No one in the ancient world would have asked that question. Cultures back then thought of existence in terms of cycles. It's just an endless repetition. You go up and you go down. You go up and you go down. 
Events were dated by rulers. You're one of Caesar Augustus and so on. Over time, the power of every Caesar, their grip on human imagination faded. But the grip of Jesus on the human heart kept growing against all odds. By about the 6th century, a, month, a monk proposed a new calendar that would be centered not on the founding of Rome, but would be centered on the birth of Jesus. That all of history would be divided into what went on before him and what went on after him. And this is real important. This idea of this calendar was not just like a uh, chronological convenience. It was a claim that human existence is not a random cycle of meaningless events, that it had a beginning and that it is leading to an end, and that the critical event in all of it was the birth of this Jewish carpenter. Jesus was born, he lived, he died. Caesar in Rome never heard a hint of Jesus' existence. Caesar ran the world. Way back in the first century, Jesus was called by his disciple John, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now say a word about that phrase because we're getting a picture of Jesus here. That this image of Jesus, the picture is, it's not just poetry. Take all the kings in the world, all the power brokers, all the presidents and prime ministers, all the CEOs, put them all in a room. Jesus is the king over them. He's not just a king. He's not just the greatest king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Now, in the first century, while Jesus still only had a small number of followers, just a handful of people, such a claim, king of kings, lord of lords, would have seemed laughable. And maybe it does to you today. But I got to say this. If you were around in the first century and you had to bet, you had to put money on whose influence would last longer, Jesus or the Roman Empire, you would not put your money on the carpenter and his motley crew. And yet today, 2,000 years later, we give our children names like Peter and Paul and Mary, and we give our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. <laughs> 2,000 years after his birth... Every time any human being anywhere on the planet looks at the date, we're reminded every day that Jesus Christ has become the hinge of history. That the emperor Nero died in the year of our Lord, 68. And that Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1821. Joseph Stalin, the dictator, died in the year of our Lord, 1953. Maybe Jesus was not Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But how strange that now every ruler who ever lived... Every nation that has ever risen and fall must be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. Who was this man? Jesus changed how the world understands compassion. It is not widely understood, but it's very important when you try to get a sense of who this man is and what he has done, regardless of what you think religiously. All human beings have a capacity for compassion but Jesus changed the way that this would get shaped. In ancient Greece and Rome, it was generally the beautiful, the noble, the strong that were valued and admired. The rich might give money for public works to build a statue or a park or something, but it was a way to show their greatness. The weak, the marginal, the disabled were not generally valued. 
A first century Roman named Seneca wrote, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. And I think about what would it be to live in a world where little children were discardable like that. And th this wasn't like a you know, source of embarrassment. That's the way that children were viewed. Now children have always been costly and challenging and sometimes difficult for parents. We have three kids, and they're all grown up now, but when we had two, the first two kids were girls, and they were quite small, like a year and a half and three, we took a long cross-country flight, and we took over the back row of the plane because nobody wanted to be near us, and it was littered with dirty diapers and cookies and crackers and crumbs and crayons, and no one wanted to be near us. You know that you're in trouble when the flight attendant comes and asks, would you mind if these kids played outside? And... <laughs> We were wondering why we bring these kids with us on this trip, why we have these kids in the first place, until a guy a couple rows in front of us turned around and kind of surveyed the damage and asked me, are those your two kids? And I thought about it for a moment, and then I said, yes, those are. And he said, my wife and I would give anything in the world to have two kids. I said, you don't have any kids? He said, no, we have five kids. We'd give anything in the world. <laughs> In the ancient world, a child could be left to die if it was disabled, if it was malformed, if it was sickly, if it was the wrong gender. Anybody want to guess what the wrong gender was? Female. In fact, in the ancient world, for every 1.4 million boys, there were about 1 million girls. What happened to the other 400,000 girls? They were just left to die. They were exposed. In some cases, an exposed child might be saved, but then it would be to be placed into slavery. But there was this community of people that followed Jesus, and they remembered that he said, let the little children come to me. And they actually took in abandoned children. They began the practice of godparents who had promised to care for a child if it was orphaned. And then that led to orphanages. These changes became so powerful, one book about them is a fascinating book, if you love kids. It is simply titled, When Children Became People. When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Widows, who were actually fined by Rome for surviving their husbands, because it was thought they'd be kind of a drag on the economy, were taken in for and cared for by this odd little community of the church, which remembered that when Jesus died, he told John to care for his widowed mother. In the first three centuries of the church, there were two major epidemics. They wiped out up to a third of whole populations. Now you think about what would happen if that were to take place in the greater Detroit area. And see, in the ancient world, there's nothing in the Greek or Roman, like Homer doesn't talk about how do you, how should you, why should you care for people that are dying. One ancient writer says that these epidemics created such a panic in the population that at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping to avert the spread and contagion of fatal disease. 
That's the ancient world. Epidemics come, people just dump family members out on the road to die. Run away as fast as they could. Except, people in this strange little community called the church. And they would actually bring sick people into their homes to care for them at risk of their own lives. Because they remembered that they followed a man who against all convention would actually touch lepers and care for and heal the sick and the blind and the deaf and the lame. In the fourth century, what was essentially the first hospital was begun by a Jesus follower named Benedict. By the sixth century, these kind of hospices or hospitals uh, became associated, connected with monasteries. That's how they began. And over time, this idea that people ought to have compassion on everybody who's weak began to take root more broadly until by something called the Geneva Convention, an organization was begun to help treat human suffering, and it chose as its symbol a large cross on its flag. It was known as the Red Cross. When you hear of groups like the Salvation Army or World Vision or the YMCA or Goodwill or Easter Seals or Habitat for Humanity or um, Food for the Hungry, when you go to hospitals called Good Shepherd or the Good Samaritan or St. Anthony's, you're seeing the touch of Jesus on our sorry, dark world. The autistic or Down syndrome child, the disabled, the mentally ill, the broken. Do you understand? These were generally regarded by our ancient ancestors as burdens that ought to be discarded. To see them as bearers of God's image, as people that can teach us through whom we become ennobled when we love them, to be prized, to be part of a community. That's the gift Jesus gave to the world of compassion. Now, I'm not saying that there's no compassion outside Christianity, not by a long shot. I'm not saying that Christians live up to the call to be compassionate, not by a long shot. But one writer puts it like this. Now think about this statement. If you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lowly, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Who was this man? His movement changed education. Human beings have always loved to learn. But in the Greco-Roman world, formal education was reserved for male children of elite wealthy families. But there was this little group called the church, and they remember they followed a man who was a teacher. Above all else, he was a teacher. And the last thing he said to them was, go to all the world and teach. Teach everybody. And so they actually started to do that. They taught slaves as well as free. They taught girls as well as boys. About the 4th century, they began to enter in these communities, monastic communities, and they loved to learn so much that they would save great texts. When Europe went into the Dark Ages and almost everything got lost, it was these little communities of followers of Jesus that saved not just the Bible and other texts like that, but great texts from Greek and from Rome. And then churches began to build schools, and then they began to build universities. So the first University of Paris, about the 12th century, and then Oxford and Cambridge. You know what the motto of Oxford University is? Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. That's the motto of Oxford University. 
And then Harvard was founded by followers of Jesus to help train people to follow Jesus. And then Yale. 92% of all the colleges and universities in America before the Civil War were founded by followers of Jesus to serve him. And then when the Reformation came along, the idea that every individual ought to be able to, you should be able to read the Bible for yourself. And that was not true in the ancient world. That's what ignited the dream for universal literacy. Why did that catch on? Martin Luther, kind of the spark of the Reformation, Luther said he was going to write a book about parents who neglect the education of their children. Listen to what Luther said. I shall really go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. Luther sometimes had a hard time expressing his emotion, but he felt quite strongly about this. In America, the first law to require public funding for mass education was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. That's a snappy name for a piece of legislation, isn't it? Because they said, it's the evil one who wants to keep people in ignorance. But Jesus says, we're going to be teaching everybody. Education is a form of worship, because then we can think God's thoughts after him. And this had real serious implications, too, for intellectual development. Um, Alfred North Whitehead is one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century. And somebody asked him one time, what made it possible for science to emerge among human beings. And his answer is so fascinating. He said, it was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. It was the belief that there is a rational, orderly God who created the world, and therefore we can expect the world to be orderly and to make sense if we devote ourselves to studying. And he said it was that attitude primarily that was responsible for the rise of science. Not to say that science couldn't have arisen otherwise, but Dinesh D'Souza puts it like this. Science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history in Europe, in the civilization then called Christendom. The greatest explosion of technology during the Middle Ages was in Christian communities, in monastic communities. Mechanical, got clo mechanical clocks were invented by monks because monks needed to know when to pray. We first actually hear about eyeglasses in a sermon because monks needed to pour over their texts. Dom Perignon was actually the name of a Benedictine monk. I am not making this up. Dom Perignon, name of a Benedictine monk who contributed to the production of champagne because there were no Baptists to tell him it was a sin to drink it. <laughs> not sure why that one gets applause. That's good news, man. The alphabet of the Slavs is called Cyrillic. They had no written alphabet, so a follower of Jesus named Cyril, missionary, created one for them so they'd be able to read the Bible. In nation after nation, followers of Jesus found languages that had not been committed to writing, and in acts of unbelievable heroism and sacrifice, they set about to that task. In many, many cases, the first effort at the scientific study of languages came from people who loved Jesus and wanted to spread his news. They compiled the first dictionaries. They wrote the first grammars. They developed the first alphabets. This still goes on. The first uh, 
proper name written in many, many, many languages was the name Jesus. The Gospels, Jesus' story, have been translated into more than 2,200 languages. No other book has been translated into even one-fifth that many. Who was this man? Y'all still with me? Jesus' movement revolutionized art. We all love art. We love beauty. We love our hearts to be moved. We're just wired that way. Without Jesus, there is no Dante who wrote the Divine Comedy, which is the primary shaper of modern Italian. There's no Martin Luther, whose German Bible was the primary shaper of modern German. There's no King James Bible, which along with Shakespeare was the primary shaper of modern English. There's no Johannes Bach, who signed every piece that he wrote to the glory of God, and that's why he wrote music. No Hallow Hallelujah Chorus, no Mozart Requiem, none of those old Gregorian chants. And by the way, musical notation, like the way that we write musical notes, that was developed by the church because they loved to worship God and wanted the worship of Jesus to be able to spread. Imagine no Sistine Chapel. Imagine no Da Vinci's Last Supper. Imagine no Justin Bieber Christmas album. There simply has been no transcendent vision of reality that has gripped the artistic imagination like the vision of Jesus. His movement changed political history and government, how we think about that. Jesus said to a group of folks one day, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now that's a remarkable sentence. And when Jesus said that, among other things, he signed his own death warrant. Because The idea that there were things that did not belong to Caesar would not have been welcome news to Caesar. Caesar thought everything belonged to him. And wheels got set in motion in the Roman Empire that would crush Jesus like a gnat when he said that. But that statement profoundly affected the way that human beings began to think about government. See, in the ancient world, the state ran religion. It was one of the levers that whoever the ruler was had to make sure that all the people were bound together and were obedient and so. So there might be lots and lots of gods, but the state had the franchise on how worship was going because part of the way that franchise went was it meant part of your allegiance to the ruler. But from Jesus came this idea uh, from Israel originally to the broader world that even kings will answer to a higher power that the power of the state ought to be limited, ought to be held in check. And eventually, over the centuries, that would lead to profound differences. Although, of course, uh, nations with many Christians in them were often awful. In fact, I would say generally, the church follows Jesus a lot worse when it has a lot of political power. It's often at its best when it has no political power at all. Jesus changed how we think about human rights and dignity and a loving God over them. You all know these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and have been endowed by the Creator with certain rights. Now, where did this idea come from? That all human beings are created equal and have been given by a Creator certain rights that ought to be observed. Because I'll tell you what, that idea was not self-evident to the ancient world. In our day, we'll often hear people say, I believe in a God of love. Where'd that idea come from? Because nobody in the ancient world said, I love Zeus, or I love Baal. 
Jesus brought from Israel to the rest of the world a different way of thinking about God and love. When I was a kid, I loved to play a game called Daddy's Home. About five o'clock in the afternoon when the front door opened, I would start running through our apartment, go down the stairs, take a flying leap, because I knew I didn't even have to look. My dad's briefcase would be down, and those great big arms would be stretched out, and then I would be embraced in them, and I loved to play that game. Daddy's home. And then one day my mom told me, my dad couldn't even bring himself to do it. My mom had to tell me, you can't play Daddy's home anymore. And I said, why not? I want to play Daddy's home. She said, well, it's not because he doesn't love you, because he does, and it's not that he won't be there for you, because he always will. It's just that you're 37 years old now. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, human arms get a little flabby. And Jesus would tell these stories. God's like a father who has a son, and no matter how rebellious that son, no matter how far he runs away from home, God's this father whose love just won't give up. And by the way, that's true for you. If you don't know that father of Jesus. See, and this is where the notion, there were Eastern religions, but they did not believe in one single personal all-powerful God. Other ancient religions, they would talk about gods, but they were not lovable or loving. The idea of I believe in a God of love, was brought to the broader world through Jesus. And it had real serious consequences. Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All human beings created equal. Thomas Cahill says, this statement of Paul is the first expression of egalitarianism, equality in human history. Now, of course, supposedly Christian individuals and nations often violate this, but the power of Jesus' teachings has a subversive way of refusing to stay submerged. And that's why reform movements like abolition were overwhelmingly led by followers of Jesus. And then Jesus uniquely taught You ought to love enemies, and you ought to forgive people that hurt you. The idea that you should love your enemy is not a natural idea. In the ancient world, what was admired was help your friends, but punish your enemies. Make them feel pain. Hurt them. Get revenge. But then there was this man who said, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Somebody forces you to go with them a mile, Tell him, can I go with you another one? Love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. And they weren't just words. As he died on a cross, he said about those who were executing him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Do you understand what that did to the world? his followers started living like him and dying like him. This really happened. The Emperor Nero would take followers of Jesus and cover them with pitch to use them as human torches to light gladiator games. And this happened on and off for three centuries. And their response was not to hate, not to taunt, not to revolt. 
It was to love and forgive. <laughs> How do you stop a movement like that? Who was this man that could move people like that? And the movement goes on. In the 19th century, he inspired a man named Tolstoy. And his book called Resurrection inspired a lawyer that you might have heard of named Gandhi to begin a community movement of reconciliation. The last letter Tolstoy wrote outside of his family was to Gandhi to praise the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. And this influence, this inspiration goes on in the most famous speech in the U.S. in the 20th century, Martin Luther King. You all know about this. At the mall in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King was giving his talk, and he, he departed from his printed manuscript at one point to quote from the Old Testament, from the Bible, justice is going to roll like water one day. Righteousness is going to roll like a mighty stream. And the crowd could not keep quiet. They started to yell back, tell it preach it. Amen. Like a church crowd. Not like this church crowd. The kind of church crowd that actually answers you back when you talk to it. And Martin Luther King could not go back to his script. And Mahalia Jackson, the great singer, piped up from behind him, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he told him about the dream. About a dream one day of a world where little children sit down together around the table and they join hands regardless of skin color, red or yellow, black or white. And there's just human fellowship. Whose dream is that? That's Jesus' dream. The Jesus of whose gospel, Martin Luther King, was a minister. And it still goes on. It still goes on. It still goes on all over the world. And for so many people here in this room. And that's why the real question is not who was this man. The real question is, who is this man? Who is Jesus? I will tell you. He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher that ever taught, the greatest mind that ever thought. He offered the greatest gift ever given and launched the greatest movement ever known. Jesus alone mastered life. Jesus alone conquered death. Jesus alone overcame sin. Jesus alone grows more present with every passing year. He is the Son of God. He is the glory of humankind. He is the hope of the nations. He is the Savior of the world. And that's who this man is. And if you know him and if you love him, you hear how big he is and how he's touched our world. And your heart just wants to pound out of your chest. No wonder I love him. No wonder I serve him. And serve him. Give him everything you've got. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church. Maybe the whole faith thing, you're just kicking the tires. You've got a lot of questions. And you're kind of wondering where I could start. And I'll tell you, even if you don't know hardly anything, you could start here. You could become an admirer of Jesus. Even if you're not sure you believe in God. You've got a lot of questions around that. You can be an admirer of Jesus. And that's a real good place to start. Tell you a little secret. In the first century, that's actually how it began for people. They started by being his admirers. And then they would actually do what he said. They found he could be trusted. Maybe you've been around a little bit and you know about Jesus. You've been admiring him for some time. And you're ready to, but you never have actually committed your life to him. And this could be your day. So I'd like to invite everybody, if you would, bow your head and close your eyes. 
And I want to give you a chance to go beyond admiring. And if you want to commit your life to Jesus, you just pray these words to God. God, I really am struck by this Jesus. And I understand that I'm a sinner, that I'm a runaway, that I have been far away from my spiritual home in you. And that Jesus came to earth and he taught and he died on the cross on my behalf. And so, God, I want to receive forgiveness for my sin today, not based on my own merits or stuff that I have done, but as a free gift, a gracious gift from you through Jesus and his death in my place on that cross. And now, God, from this day forward, I want Jesus as my leader. And as you help me, I will seek to follow him. I want him to be my friend. I give my life to him this day. And Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody that makes that decision. We all pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to tell you, if you make that decision, that is the most important commitment you will ever make. And Brad and the team here at this church would love to help you. There's a little connection card in your program, and if you want to just uh, tear it out, and you can fill it out, put in your name and and then if you have made that decision or any significant spiritual decision or there's any area of your life where uh, this church could serve you, uh, I know there would be nothing that the team would rather do more than do that. So just fill this out right now. And when you're leaving, there's boxes all around the exits and you can just pop in the box and somebody will get back to you and help you take a next step in your life towards Jesus. And that's about it for today. But I was thinking, I think I'd kind of like to close by giving you a blessing. My church, Presbyterian Church, we always end services with kind of a blessing. So would you all be okay with that? Can I give you a blessing? All right, would you all stand up? I was talking to a friend of mine, Dallas Willard, one time about, like, what is this whole blessing thing? And he said, the idea is kind of this. We live in spiritual reality. Not just a world of what you can touch and see in here. We live in spiritual reality. And to bless someone is to speak good into their life. To speak the good into their life. And those words, a blessing has power. And then Dallas gave our church the kind of blessing I want to give you. He said, I think... The words Jesus would have for you right now are the words that he spoke to a guy in the Bible named Zacchaeus. Anybody remember that little guy in the Bible, Zacchaeus? Jesus said, today, I'm coming to your house. I want to be with you today. God bless you so richly in Jesus' name. Thank you so much. Come on back next week.